internet friends and welcome back to love hate relationship an opinionated podcast for opinionated people i'm andy bowell and i'm alex ruiz and as ever we are here to brighten your day anger your soul and tell you how to live your lives in that order and, and andy alex, you had something yeah and alex um at, at time of release we will either be on the eve of the anniversary or as close as we'll probably get to the original covid lockdown you know this is coming out in the earlier chunk of february and it was either february or march so you know maybe i'm off by a month but the point is we've been living in the uh nightmare new normal for just about a year and i was reflecting on that and and a little shocked to realize yeah shit it it has been a year of uh worry and working from home and all that foolishness but i just wanted to you know talk to you a little bit and 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 get your thoughts about how the past year has gone and and you know maybe maybe we can swing it around and and be hopeful for the future but knowing us maybe not (laughs) I mean, thematically speaking, here's the thing. I think we might be a little bit early for the COVID anniversary. Um, that said, I'm I'm looking at a calendar, and I think this episode is supposed to drop on February the second, on Groundhog's Day, which feels thematically. <laughs> it feels thematically um, like a fair point there. I mean, you know, it's it's not like. Every day and every week feels so much the same. Right. Constantly. I think that's why, like, I'm sitting here surprised because just we were sitting here saying it at the, uh, you know, by month two, how how time had just seemed to have lost all meaning and structure and format. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, it's... It's it's amazing what human beings can get used to. Mm. That is that is something that you know, if you're if you're even remotely a student of history, you'll understand. Like people, incredibly, can get used to so much shit. Oh my god, um, and when I think about. I think more than anything, when I look back on the last year, I'm disappointed hmm. a lot of the time. That's like, uh, and like, I, I, I've been very open on this show about my desire to not come off as cynical. And I don't want to say that things are hopeless, but I'm not sitting here look, feeling like I'm looking at, you know, a delinquent child who will never amount to anything. I'm looking at a delinquent child who I'm like... God damn, I don't believe in hitting children, but I want to smack the shit out of you, America. Um, and that's not a good place to start with a conversation <laughs> like this. Well, But, but at, it's at where the, I am. Yeah, at the same point, to your point, like, we, we are very much at the point where it's like we're seeing from Asian countries and European countries, like... Hey, we're at the point where we can have a EDM music festival again, or we're at the point where, um, you know, we're able to have great mass gatherings 
And at the same time, we're sitting here in the U.S. being like, God, I sure hope Pfizer works because we've yeah. like the the thing that makes me the most cynically upset is, you know, there's going to be a bunch of capitalist conservative writer wing takes of people who spin this into a good thing and are proud and is like, yeah we powered through and we never sacrificed capitalism in the name of, of, of fear. And we, we never backed down and, and we also got, um, we also got back to normal because we, we did the good capitalist thing and we got a, uh, we, we paid somebody to come up with the solution. God, this system is great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's funny because the metaphors write themselves. You know, we are we are the nation that decided that our approach to dealing with this was going to be let people die until we can create a for-profit drug to deal with it. It's... It's, it, it, you know, if it were a movie, I would be sending the script back with notes of like, it's a little on the nose, don't you think? <laughs> right. Like, it's, and it's, it's weird to me because at this, we're, we're in unprecedented times and at the same time, incredibly precedented times in, in multiple ways. So I've, I'll read takes about how, um, you know, the pandemic is the thing that uh, created this incredibly conscious generation that is aware so much of, a, a, of privilege and lack of privilege, of the horrors of profit-making healthcare and of fascist administrations. And when we look back, like... Is this the same? Is this pandemic response the same as Reagan's treatment of the AIDS epidemic? No, but there are echoes. Well, yeah. Is, yeah. Is is the is the idea that we you know the point you make where people are going to like pat themselves on the back and say you know America dealt with this and we dealt with this the American way, like. It's it's very similar to the fact that there are how many countries that deal with the exact same problems that the U.S. deals with, like poverty, like war, like terrorism, like educational issues, like access to any number of necessities for life and liberty and property, which is where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness came from. And if you don't know that, you have no business explaining the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence to me. Um, there's there's this thread line that, like, we're America. We, we got through it the way that we needed to. But, like, how many other countries got through it way easier and in way less time and had way fewer fatalities and we're going to ch we we love in in the U.S. We love to cheer ourselves for a C minus performance. Right. Alex, how old were you when you fully became disillusioned with with like the American system? Because I I feel like I got into it pretty late. It, it had to have been in my my teens. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
mean, in my teens, uh, you know, I was still, you, you know, I registered as a Democrat, uh, before the 2008 election, because you can register to vote when you're 17. Uh, I registered as a Democrat. I was happy to register as a Democrat. I was happy to vote Democrat in 2008. I was a believer that, you know, the system had issues, but that ultimately it worked. Um, and then, you know, I was probably out of it. Like, I was probably full on. I, my, you know, I, I'm proud of this. My politics shift with time, with exposure. Um, and I've come around on different issues and I'm still evolving my politics but I think I was probably like, nah, burn it all down um, and start something new. Uh, early 20s, late teens, around there, you know, like, I don't, I don't, here's the thing. I don't even consider myself that radical. I really don't. Like, I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen suburban children with, you know, two kinds of hair dye talking about, you know, destroying the system. And I'm like. You know what? Calm down, Timothy. It's okay. Like, <laughs> right? I don't consider myself that radical. I, I am. I am very radical to a moderate Democrat stance, but I'm, you know, pretty open to compromise. Believe it or not, I just don't like to compromise with people who start with a gun to my head. Which, fair, I can't. <laughs> Anyway, just wanted to I don't know. Are you fully are that. you fully disillusioned? Are you fully disillusioned? You are the most you are one of the most hopeful, bright human beings in my life. It's one of the reasons why I delight sitting with you a few times a month and just having these conversations is because I can sit here and go, Well, you know, Andy's smart, Andy knows what's up, and Andy's not without hope. So like maybe uh, maybe it's not all like destruction and misery maybe well I, I and i don't want to dispel you of that beautiful uh notion there but to answer your question i mean i reflect on how like there is such a cult of personality to the nation state in and itself and like i work with so many people who unironically uh, talk about how proud they are to be an American or um, I, I work on this, uh, this project for the government every year or uh, a couple of times every year. And they always make sure to pledge allegiance to the flag. And so it's a room of grown adults citing the pledge of allegiance. And I internally just grip my teeth every time and I'm standing behind a camera, so I have an excuse to not uh, recite the oath with everybody else. But I just sit here and go, God, I, I, I wish I could be Canadian. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I get it. I, <sighs> I'm not disillusioned You're... in the fact that I like, I still see people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, and so I still see that like there is a capacity for hope. But then to see those same voices consistently quashed down and the um, 
particularly not not only quashed down by the right but also quashed down by the other half of the left who are sitting there going like shut up we need to be center it's the only way we can get anything it's like shit man yeah i mean it's it's i'm never mad at people who say that they're proud to be americans in a vacuum I'm mad at people who think that if you're proud of something, that means you can't criticize it. Right. I'm proud. I'm proud to be Colombian. I criticize that culture left and right because it has a lot of problems. <laughs> you know, I'm proud to have grown up in the South. I think it's a beautiful, incredible place filled with an astonishing history, incredible culture, wonderful expressions of all of that, and hell, pretty decent weather. And I'm going to criticize it a lot. If you can't criticize something you're proud of, that something that you, if you can't criticize something you love, that's not love. That's sycophants. Sure. So, uh, I, I, I'll always use the, I'll always use the point, you know, like I was born into being an American, um, And whenever I argue with other people who are born into being American who want to tell me that, like, I'm not proud enough of my Americanness, I will straight up tell them, of course, like, you know, I I don't I didn't earn this. Like, my parents earned this. You didn't earn this. My parents are more American than you will ever be because they they tried to make this happen and they succeeded. You were born in fucking Missouri. Like. As long as you were born there after the 1860s, you were fine, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> so whatever gets you through, honestly, just, just, Andy, please don't lose hope. I have so little of it to cling to, and I'm trying so hard. For you, buddy, I will do my best. And speaking of sycophants, uh, welcome to Love Hate Relationship. And if you're still listening, um, that's the only reason I could imagine is that you are sycophantically devoted to the show and our, uh, our musings and ramblings. And and we dearly love you for that internet friend. Um, in case, in case this is your first time listening and you're wondering, did you stumble into, um, uh, a good old socialist political podcast. You did not. What we actually do on this show is every episode, one of us talks about something we love. The other one talks about something they hate. And then we take your relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And this week I've got the love. Yes, you do. And it's a beautiful love that I can't wait to revel in before I destroy it with politics. So, <laughs> Absolutely. So um, it's been a minute, Alex, since we've talked about a specific writer's run on a comic book. Um, That's right. I know the last time I did it, I referenced Mark Wade's Daredevil, which I deeply love. And I'm talking about another Marvel property, kind of starting in the same era that I... I love as much, if not maybe a little more. And so I'm going to talk to you today about Jason Aaron's now legendary run of Thor. All right. I'm here for it. And I'm here for this primer you put together, which is thoroughly appreciated. Yeah, I I can learn from my mistakes. We just dove into Daredevil without talking about who it is. And so for those of you who need a primer... Thor is not merely a Norse god, but also a superhero from Marvel Comics. Hey, big guy. The sun's getting real low. 
Thor and in fact the entire pantheon of Norse mythology were adapted into the comics and have been one of the most popular characters in Marvel's history. Um, you know, most well known now, I think, for being played in the Marvel films by Chris Hemsworth. And by this seven year run of the character written by writer Jason Aaron. Mm-hmm. And and just a couple things off the bat. I, I recognized this is my second time talking about Marvel. And, and I think I addressed this really my third time talking about Marvel. If you count the X-Men episode, I, I think sure. I addressed this somewhere. I am not a DC guy anymore. <laughs> I, I, uh... I, I deeply love Jeff Johns and I'll be here for a talk about Jeff Johns's green lantern stuff someday. But by and large, ever since DC rebooted their universe for like the second time in three years, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm good. I'm done. I like DC Which for is... stories, but I can't do runs from them anymore. See, and, and so that's and that's so funny because like longtime listeners might know that um, uh, fr- friend of the podcast Daniel Brown has his own show called Character Progression, which you and I have both appeared on, mm-hmm. and you were on I think his second episode yep. talking about the Joker. That's correct. And now you're saying you're not really into DC anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not into modern DC comics. I I haven't kept up with DC in close to 10 years in the same way that I keep up to date with what's going on in Marvel. I still, I I will still read DC comics. Um, You know, I, I remember showing you and talking your ear off about what was my, one of my most favorite DC comics in the past five years. And that is the, uh, the white Knight standalone series, which is a, like an alternate reality where the Joker becomes sane and becomes a good guy. And it's this brilliant fun take on the concept that I want to say was written by Scott Snyder, but I, I can't remember. It wasn't, it was written by some, some random, his, his name's like Sean Murphy or something. Some Irish writer who mostly did indie comics. And this is like his one DC thing. Right. Okay. So Sean Murphy, so just all that to say, like I can still have appreciation for DC, but I can't sit here and follow a, I, I can't just pick up DC comics and, and read a hundred issues of Batman like I can and have for Thor. So to tie back into that, um, it really can't be overstated what a impressive and unusual thing is that writer Jason Aaron was allowed to take the character, excuse me, was allowed to take the character and basically carve out his own corner in the greater Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. And again, for seven years, he he started writing the book in 2012. I have that first volume of the of his complete collection, and if you look if you look at it, both thematically and just like as little Easter egg hints and stuff, there's stuff sprinkled into those first few issues of Jason Aaron's Thor that aren't paid off until 2019, when the book came out in 2012. It's it's a, a brilliant little thing, and it really speaks to the talent of Aaron's writing more than anything. That Marvel trusted him enough to be like, okay, you get to do the thing. We're not going to give you 
30 issues and then reboot the character like we do so often for so many other properties. Hmm. Now, go ahead. Um, are you familiar with how Jason Aaron got his career started? I know that one of his earliest works was an indie comic called Scalped, which I've mm-hmm. I've dabbled in, and I, I feel like it's pretty good. But I feel like you're you're leaning into something else, and I am unaware of it. This is just a fun story. Jason Aaron won a Marvel Comics talent search contest in the early 2000s with an eight-page Wolverine backup. I had no idea about that. I love that. He basically like what like like he essentially won a like comic book writer equivalent of an in-house like American Idol contest with a Wolverine story that got ended up getting printed like the following year or something. But after that, he just was in the room and got to pitch ideas for whatever else. But that's how he got started. He won a talent contest you know, you, with an eight-page Wolverine story. You, you talked about needing hope uh, a few minutes ago, and I got to tell you that more that that gives me so much hope, and that puts such a smile on my face that it's still possible for for somebody to get discovered in that way. Because because Jason Aaron is one of the main voices at Marvel now. Like he's he's written Wolverine, he's written the X Men, he's written the Avengers, he's written uh, stuff for Secret Wars, and. And he is going to go down with Walter Simonson as one of the like definitive. Oh, you like Thor? Here is a giant stack of comics you need to read. Like that is how important his work is in the greater canon of the character. So I yeah. adore that. Yeah. So I, I'm going to be upfront with you. I haven't read much of Jason Aaron's Thor. I've I know a lot about it because I've listened to and read a number of reviews about it, especially because it has gotten some controversy, um, yep. <laughs> mostly around shitty comic fans, and we can definitely get into that. But I'm going to be honest, I'm a little blind here. Most of the Jason Aaron material that I'm familiar with is his X-Men material. Because I've never been a huge Thor guy. Like, at the end of the day, I'm going to follow writers more than characters. But, like, I don't know this run too terribly well other than, you know, what I've read about it. Well, and that's fascinating. And and so I'm... I'm interested in in talking to you about some points and telling you what I know. Um, And and the biggest thing is, like, we are looking at a seven-year run of comic books of a specific character. And this isn't mm-hmm. Jay and miles explain the X-Men. So I'm not like, I see no point in trying to do like a specific play by play, but I do want to talk about some of the finer points and some of the best moments. And, and just, I think one of the most important things to look at is Aaron's work is deeply tied into the next Thor film, which is Thor mm-hmm. Four: love and thunder. Mm-hmm. And so, there are just a great many things that people are going to need to know. Or if a passing fan watches this movie and is like, well, I want to know more about why there's a woman Thor. People are going to hand him the Jason Aaron work. And and so not only to get into, to get into that, not only did Jason Aaron famously coin the idea of making Jane Foster, the female Thor, 
which was a hugely infamous and controversial um, moment in comics, especially from toxic, white, shitty comic fanboys. Um, but he also laid the groundwork for Thor Odinson, the Chris Hemsworth Thor, to be an unworthy character, which is mm-hmm. something that's been deeply explored in the last two Marvel movies. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. got to it a different way, but the idea of just like breaking down the character and and making a god ungodly and and human that is that that really stems a lot from Jason Aaron's stuff. Noob Master, hey, it's Thor again. You know the God of Thunder. Listen, buddy, if you don't log off this game immediately, I'm gonna fly over to your house, come down to that basement you're hiding in, rip off your arms, and shove them up your butt. And Jason Aaron also created the character of Gore the God Butcher, who is going to be the villain in the next upcoming Thor movie and is played by Christian Bale. And so anybody who's followed me on Twitter just personally, like saw the moment where I lost my damn mind um, when this was announced because they announced Christian Bale first. And I was sitting here going like, Oh, Oh, he's going to be this bad guy. He's going to be this specific person. And then they said, no, he's going to be gore. And it's like, he's going to be fucking gore. Oh my God. I was very excited. (laughs) Oh God. That's why is that so precious to me? I love it. Um, (laughs) Okay. So the thing that I actually remember, um, and I don't know if this is worth talking about or not. You tell me. Um, I actually remember that for the first, like, I think year or two of that run after Jane Foster Thor, like, and for those of you who don't know, Jane Foster is the, like, longtime love interest of Thor um, throughout the comics. Right. Um, for those of you who aren't comics fans, uh, if Thor is your Superman, Jane Foster is your Lois Lane. Yeah, very much. And anybody who only watched the movies and remembered, it is Natalie Portman's character. Yes. So, um, the first few years of that run, they didn't reveal that it was Jane Foster. Right. It was just, there is a female Thor. There is a woman Thor. And in interviews, Jason Aaron would be like, she is Thor. She is not Lady Thor. She is not you know, girl Thor. She is not anything like that. It's it's not She-Thor. This isn't a She-Hulk situation. She is Thor, the other character who we've always called Thor, we will now refer to as Odinson. And that is where the story will progress. And it was only later that they revealed it was Jane Foster. And that reveal was simultaneously, like, Female Thor was already a big thing that was a problem for a lot of idiots. Uh, when you revealed it was Jane Foster, it kind of, I, I don't know, I, to me at the time, I thought of it as a giant middle finger to that entire group because yes. how many stories of Jane Foster being the damsel of the of d- damsel in distress permeated through the 60s and 70s? And now she is more powerful than the character who was her love interest for all of that time or most of that time. Right. And, and more than anything, like it, it was a subversion and it was a new and interesting idea. I think it very much was uh, a middle finger um, to those people, much in the same way that um, Sam Wilson's African-American Captain America was a middle finger to people who, 
had issues with that. It's, it, it's, it's legacy and it's something new and it's a fresh new idea. And, and that is something that Jason Aaron has throughout all of his work been able to be like, I'm going to do something new and I'm not afraid to get weird. And I'm not like going to be beholden to what the fans tell me the characters should be because I'm trying to come up with a new, like a new chapter in the overarching history of the character. And I love that because so many times you do get like, okay, you get 30 issues, you get to make your mark and then we're going to take you off the book, even no matter how well it's selling. And then we're going to let somebody else have their 30 issues. And it, it speaks to, you know, what I've always said is the, anti-legacy problem of comic book characters by making female Thor and by taking a character like Jane Foster and making her Thor, he, he opened up not only new story ideas for Jane Foster, but new story ideas for Odinson and, and just injected life into this universe. And at the end of the day, like, Jane Foster was Thor for like four years, something like that. She had Mm -hmm. a lasting piece of it. And then still within Jason Aaron's framework, Odinson became Thor again. And Jane Foster kind of went away for a little while. And now she's actually Valkyrie um, in the comics. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Which, just again, to tie it into the movies, because I think the Thor movies are what a lot of people are going to remember. Tessa Thompson's character is, like, Jane Foster is the new version of that. So. All right. Uh, hmm. Trying to figure it. I feel like we've had this conversation before. Um, and we're going to keep having it because it's an ongoing issue for comics fans. But the idea that everything always goes back to a certain status quo in comics. And that is frequently very frustrating. Um, In the past, I've referred to it as the Roy Thomas problem. Mm. There for a generation of writers. um, And if you don't know who Roy Thomas is, Roy Thomas was basically the guy who picked up all the slack off of, um, off of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby when they stopped being the writers. Uh, And Roy Thomas was a comic book obsessive kid back in the 60s. And when he got hired at Marvel, he started off as an intern and eventually worked his way to pretty much editing or writing all of the books. And most of the iconic post-Lee Kirby stuff that you know from Marvel Comics came from Roy Thomas. Now, the problem is Roy Thomas was so many people's favorite writer that you know, for a lot of the 70s and 80s, people just kept wanting to redo Roy Thomas stories. And they just wanted to take everything back to the way Roy Thomas did things. And you had exceptions to that. Um, Chris Claremont is a great one. Um, you know, he was never he never really felt beholden to the Roy Thomas legacy. But the people writing your Thors, your Fantastic Fours, your Captain Americas, your Avengers would frequently go back to the Roy Thomas well. And it's still, you're still getting versions of that. You know, now there are ex writers who would want to go back to the Claremont years. There are Thor writers who want to go back to the Walter Simonson years. 
Um, and nothing, it always goes, it always feels like it goes back to that status quo, you know? Yeah, like, I've always... Wally, Wally West can't be the Flash forever. He can be the Flash for 20 years, but he can't be the Flash forever, right? Someone has mixed an amazing Spider-Man in with the Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man series. This will not stand. Exactly. I've, I've always equated it to the Joe Quesada problem of Spider-Man can't be married because he wasn't married when I read Spider-Man. Exactly. You know what? That might even be a better way to... I, I, I think I'm more happy calling it the Quesada problem than the Roy Thomas problem. But, you know, Quesada's, one of Quesada's favorite writers, one of his mentors was Roy Thomas. Sure. So, you know, I think it's it's so interesting that... Um, or, or not so interesting, what I want to say is, I, I think it's one of the, like, core appeals of jason aaron's thor that he does do something different even even though he you know it's it's the the man clearly had a story laid out and was like it's going to take me seven years to get to the payoff just bear with me and in bearing with him he he took the character to new places and then brought the character back it's it's still so good you know a lot of people point to thor ragnarok as like the thing that revitalized the character. And I'm here for that mm. argument. We, we've talked about it on the show. Ragnarok was a phenomenal movie and, and Taika Waititi is a genius, brilliant director who I no doubt will talk about on the show at another point here for that. But so much of that movie came out of what Jason Aaron was doing with, with Thor. And to be fair, what Greg Pak had done with Hulk when he did the planet mm -hmm. Hulk storyline, just credit where it's due. Yep. Fair. Jason Aaron's Thor comes across as epic in scale and scope in a way that is just, just downright impressive, even for comic books, even when like every 20 issues of something, the world is in danger or, aliens are going to come blow up the solar system or like just, you know, every, there's a villain of the week and every villain of the week has a new bomb. That's going to blow up the earth. Jason Aaron's Thor felt more mythical and more important. And, and part of that is because of the nature of the character, you're dealing with dimensions, you're dealing with entire realms and the stakes are bigger, but also it is the point that he took plot points and meticulously laid them out and took three, four, six, seven years to pay them off. And, and a lot of his stuff has hugely affected the Marvel universe and is still being important right now. Like at, at, at time of recording, there is a brand new, um, event going on in Marvel and it's called King in black. And it's this really cool, really good looking like venom, super bad guy. It's like the, the, the God of venom is taking mm -hmm. over the earth and, um, using his dark goo symbiotic powers to just ruin everybody's day. And he's this character okay. called null, the God of the symbiotes. And Null, as it turns out, was actually like hinted at and revealed and sort of his powers were shown in those first few issues of Jason Aaron's Thor. And 
Gore, the God Butcher, the Christian Bale character, his powers are actually because he he inadvertently stole something from Null. And Jason Aaron isn't writing King in Black. A guy named Donnie Cates is. But the fact that Jason Aaron threw some plot points in there and somebody else was like, oh, oh yeah, oh, I can do a thing with that. Holy crap. And he's become like a a key reference point in Marvel. That's significant. That is impressive to me. I'm here for that. Yeah. Um before we move on, I feel remiss if I didn't if I didn't do this. Um so how much of the run have you read? I have read probably a good two thirds of it. I, I haven't gotten to the climax, which was a, a whole comics event called the War of the Realms. I haven't gotten to that yet, but I'm I'm working my way through it. Okay, so without significant spoilers, and if I'm going to pitch this to someone who's just a, you know, kind of a comics fan, interested in maybe some good story arcs, Mm -hmm. what are, you know, can you give me in like a sentence or two each, like three moments in this comic that would make like a casual fan absolutely love it? Or two or one moment, if that's easier for you. In the very... The, the first storyline is centered around Thor kind of having to solve this mystery and have this sort of CSI moment for there is something that is going around killing gods, killing alien mm-hmm. gods, killing gods you've never heard of, killing gods you're never going to hear of, but killing gods specifically there is a serial killer of gods and if you've been paying attention through this episode i can give you three guesses who that is but it ends in this climax of thor having to reckon with if gods can be murdered are they really gods what am i really are we just this higher being of power uh, uh, this this more powerful being, but not an omnipotent being, and has to struggle with the nature of what it is to be a quote unquote god figure. Um, mm. and and that is a fascinating examination and juxtaposition. And Aaron kind of runs with that concept for the next seven years, and and plays with it in as many different ways as he can think of, and it. it always winds up being enjoyable. Okay. I'm here for it. I have access to a Marvel unlimited at one day. I'll have spare time. Uh, one day. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, I still got to get through all the Sandmans that you sent me. Um, that's fair. That's very important. <laughs> but then after that, um, maybe I'll take a tackle at uh, Jason Aaron's Thor run. I've been meaning to take a look at it anyway. I love his X-Men stuff. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend it. Like Aaron, just Aaron as a writer is one of my favorites. Um, he's somebody that I now trust. He, he was basically after uh, he had such a, such a successful time at Thor Marvel bought the rights to Conan the Barbarian and turned to him and was like, you, we, you clearly know how to do Epic fantasy. Do you want to write Conan? Um, and I, I very much want to read that stuff. I, I mentioned I was collecting all of Mark Wade's daredevil. I am also collecting all of Jason Aaron's Thor. It is in the same esteem to me. And it manages to 
kind of be separate from the rest of Marvel in a way that is refreshing. And you can, you can just focus on Thor if you want and still, um, you don't have to go ahead and, and read Avengers or anything like that. So I very much recommend that's always it. how that's always how a book should ideally go. Exactly. Like you, you can read this if you want, if you want to tie it in, that's good, but it's not necessary. It's always the ideal. Yeah. So, so with that said, I very much recommend it and thank you for letting me gush. Okay. Um, Andy, you ready for me to bring everybody down? <laughs> always. All right, sweet. Uh, so from joyful comic book recommendations to um, the horrors of contemporary life and education. Um, Fascinating. <laughs> One of our classic start- <laughs> uh, topic pivots. <laughs> so uh, as always, I like to start with a question. And uh, Andy, this one's a pretty basic one, uh, fairly open. Can you tell me... Uh, about the gamut of sex education that you received in your life. This can include family, church, school, pop culture, friends, what you heard on the playground, any of it. Um, But how were you educated on that subject? Sure. So I I can remember fourth grade, maybe fifth grade. Um you know what? Yeah, it, it had to have been fifth grade was when we started in school having sex ed videos and the your body is changing um, explanations and, and all of that. So, you know, every year from then until my sophomore year of high school, probably there 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 was you know mandatory sex education classes. That night came the honeymoon. She's faking it. And, and I'll tell you, that started in Colorado, not Florida. So maybe that's part of why it started in fifth grade. Um, so that that's schooling. And, and pop culture certainly filled a bunch of the blanks. Um, my parental sex education is non-existent. Um, I never had the talk with my dad. And I think that's partially because he probably didn't want to have to subject himself to that awkward conversation. I I can remember Mm -hmm. a sort of amusing um, anecdote. My cousin lives in California and was real big into like skateboard culture um, when he was younger. And I can remember uh, a trip to California visiting him. We're looking through some skateboarder magazine and I don't remember why, but there's this little graffiti looking cartoon of uh, a, a cartoon guy having sex with a woman and he is behind her. And I was just so confused. I was like, what, what is, why, what, huh? And my cousin goes, oh, they're butt fucking. I was like, what is that? That's a thing? Oh. <laughs> uh... So then my cousin explained to me how, how that was a, a way you could do the thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I feel like I had a decently standard um, sex, sex education from schooling and the rest of my knowledge was was filled in through pop culture and eventually, you know, like like most young boys, I discovered pornography and um, mm-hmm. that filled in the rest of the blanks. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
So, you know, that's pretty, pretty typical fare. Um, funny enough, my experience wasn't too terribly dissimilar. Um, I also started, I, I started sex ed in Florida, also started it in about fifth grade. Um, oh, fun fact, <laughs> fun fact, the states of Florida and Colorado both have no mandate to teach sex ed from, from the state level. Huh. That is purely a county by county thing well, or school district by school district thing. Well, good. Good for us, I guess. <laughs> uh, we were lucky enough to get it, I mean. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I had trash sex education um, and a big, and, and you know, a lot of it, funny enough, a lot of mine came from pop culture, even around schooling, because, uh, and I've been upfront about this on the show many times, uh, my parents didn't terribly restrict much of what I watched or listened to. Sure. So I, like, I saw movies with sex scenes before I knew what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And I think I, like, probably asked my dad or asked my sister or whoever, like, what's going on there? And they're like, oh, they're having sex. It's, it's how you make babies. Like, that's fine. Um, and, and I got like the most clinical basic, just like, you know, that thing that you've got, like it's, 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 it's your private parts. It goes into a girl's private parts and, you know, then stuff goes between and that's how, you know, pregnancies happen. I'm like, okay, that's, and it, and it wasn't that big a deal. It, it may as well have been any other question that I asked, you know, why does the moon have holes in it? Or, gotcha. you know, it, it was so matter of fact, um, but uh, my schooling education is something that I would put more focus on, at least in this topic. Um, thank you, Andy, for your for your particular answer. For me, um, the the bane of my schooling sexual education was abstinence only education, mm-hmm. um, or abstinence like affirming education, and that's what I wanted to talk about today. So. For basic definition, abstinence-only sex ed is a form of sexual education that is centered on actively avoiding sex until marriage. This typically extends to all forms of remotely sexual contact and frequently provides little to no regard or instruction to subjects like birth control, same-sex relationships, or protections from STIs. Um... To give it its fair weight, the primary arguments for abstinence-only sex ed uh, versus more comprehensive forms of sex ed are that abstinence is, quote-unquote, the only 100% effective way to prevent pregnancy and STIs. And the latter, more comprehensive type of sex ed, encourages sex among teenagers who aren't mature enough to handle the responsibilities involved with that. Um, and anybody who's watched Spring Awakening understands how that will play out. <laughs> For reference, Spring Awakening, the um, Broadway musical based on an old German play where children have absolutely no understanding of what sex is because their parents are all prudes. And then when they have sex... Or start jerking off or have same-sex relationships, they're very confused as to why they are now throwing up and feeling sick and experiencing morning sickness. And they don't understand what's going on. 
And when the adults get mad at them for having sex, they're like, we don't even know what we did. What did we do? We just did a thing. We didn't know the thing was bad because literally nobody told us. No one said a single thing about it. No one talked about it at all. It's a fun show. Um, music by Duncan Sheik. Um, and for those of you who like don't know Duncan Sheik, he's the guy who did the Barely Breathing song. Fantastic song. Great music in that show. Look up Duncan Sheik. He's great. Look up Spring Awakening. It's great. Back to the show. Go on. Go on. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> No, I appreciate it. I need these interjections. Otherwise, I'm just reading blocks of text. Um, Okay, so finishing up my basic background info. um, While there are proponents for abstinence-only education all over the world, I'm going to narrow my focus to the U.S. since, A, it's where I had most of my definitive material, uh, and B, the most experience. Uh, 37 states in the U.S. mandate mandate that abstinence be covered in sex ed, and 26 of those emphasize that it be stressed. Um, These include surprising entries like Maine, Washington, and Rhode Island, not-so-surprising spots like Alabama, Georgia, and Missouri, and all three states that I have lived in, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Florida. To wit, Florida does not mandate that there be sex ed, but if there is sex ed, they mandate that it be abstinence-affirming and stress abstinence. And, and real quick, not to, not to invalidate your point, because I, I agree with your point, but if you have to do that, that's, that's the only way I think the argument holds any water. Because the the point of it all, to, to me at least, is stressing the education and building the knowledge base. And so you can't do that without actually talking about the thing. Otherwise, as we just pointed out, you, you wind up with a spring awakening situation. So you got to explain everything. And then if you have to have an abstinence component of it, explain that abstinence is more effective than condoms or plan B or, or it doesn't have the side effects of birth control or, um, so in, in, in a very devil's advocate kind of way, if you, if you have to do it, that's, I think the better way to do it. Well, and uh, like, this is something I was definitely going to mention a little bit later, but, um, I'm not opposed to abstinence being taught as a thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as like okay for and 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 to state up front your state of colorado um mandates that abstinence be a component of sex ed when it's taught they also mandate that contraceptives be taught they also mandate that there be hiv education like there are there are different things mandated at different levels I don't have a problem with abstinence being taught as a valid decision because for me at the end of the day, all of this comes down to things that we talk about on the show all the time, bodily autonomy, making your own choices, affirming those choices. I think it's really shitty when, you know, teenagers or even adults who choose to be abstinent or even celibate get called weird or be or you know are shamed 
for making that choice. I think that's a fine choice to make if that's the choice you want to make. Mm -hmm. My problem is treating it like it is the only or even the best way, like putting it above anything else. That is fucked up. Sure. That is wrong. That is evil. But, like, the the random-ass, like, person who is sitting there in a sex ed class who's like, I, you know, I kind of just want to wait until marriage. Like, that's what I want to do with my life. Like, go on with your, get on with your bad self, little homie. Like, please, do the thing. That's, <laughs> that is valid. It is. That's valid. I, I just, it's the idea that it's the only valid option that I struggle with. Sure. So, why do I hate abstinence-only sex education? Um, I'm going to throw some to just just running down this. Number one, and I don't think anyone who's read about this subject even poorly will be surprised by this, it's ineffective. Um, I'll link to this in the show notes, but a 2010 report from the Guttmacher Institute showed that there was a marked increase in teen pregnancy peaking around 2006 following a shift back towards abstinence-only sex ed, um, which had kind of peaked that year. That was opposed to record lows in the 90s when more comprehensive sex ed was taught, which included, say, contraception education. The same holds true about STIs rates and abortions. Like, we've, we've, we've run the numbers. Like, if you give kids the understanding about what about what their options even are they do better abstinence only just kind of doesn't teach them what they need to know so that when your arguments about family values or 100 percent effectiveness don't hold out like they're left with nothing right it's dare all over again right and just i mean i don't think it can be uh overstated enough if you don't explain a thing that has consequences then the people you're not explaining it to don't understand the consequences like if your goal is i don't want my kids having sex Even if you're going to go fire and brimstone and be like, you're going to get pregnant and die, that at least comes up with a reason for the kid to be like, well, I don't want to get pregnant and die, so I'm not going to do the thing, as opposed to um, just not knowing and then not seeing a problem because you don't know. Well... Okay, I might have told this story before, um, but a, a, someone I used to know, um, a, an individual of more of a libertarian conservative approximation that I knew back in college, um, he unfriended me on Facebook some years ago, and I think a lot of it came down to the fact that this was back when I would argue with people on Facebook more regularly. Mm. Um he he was posting some shit about how his daughters, who at the time were pretty young, under the age of 13, I think, um, him making some comment um, on a mutual friend of ours who was just kind of like doing one of those nice virtue signaling posts where it was like a dad's shirt that said, um, 
to my daughter's boyfriend. Um, I don't decide if she has sex with you. You don't decide if she has sex with you. Only she can decide what she chooses to do with her body. Really, like, nice, sweet kind of thing you see on Facebook. And this dude, who, again, has a couple of preteen daughters being like, no, my daughters are minors. I decide while they're minors, you know, what's going to happen with them. And, you know, I and I got into it with him, not because I'm sitting here like trying to discourage him from, you know, teaching his daughters, whatever his values are. The point is, at the end of the day, parents who think they can control their children's sexuality are idiots. (laughs) They are stupid goddamn morons who don't understand a single thing about life or the personhood of their own children. Like, that harkens back to the my children are my property shit. There's a Simpsons quote where Homer straight up, like, Marge ha- uh, Marge catches Homer, like, sending it, like, punishing his kids to do some manual labor or something. And she's like, Homer, you can't do that to the kids. And he goes, why can't I do that? They're my kids. I own them. <laughs> I'll have to find that for you. <laughs> And I and I'm just like, oh my god, that's this is this is literally the attitude you have. And I'm sitting here just like, it 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 is it, it is definitely a weird hazy line in terms of like it is absolutely fucking horrifying for like young children, like preteen children, to have sex. I, I'm going to draw that line right there. I think that's horrifying. I think that's way too young. I think you don't understand what's going on. Yeah. Um. When I start hearing about kids in high school, and to be clear, like you're a freshman in high school when you're 14, like kids in high school starting to hook up with one another, I'm sitting here like, ah, look, I, I don't want the 18-year-old senior hooking up with the 14-year-old freshman that is horrifying to me at the same time you know it's if we're going to affirm our kids choices the point is you know what you're right you're not fully developed you don't understand the full consequences of your actions the reason you don't understand the full consequences of your actions is not because you're a teenager it's because no one's fucking explained it to you i cannot cotton to that this idea that you can just say don't do a thing and your kids are all going to be fucking angels who won't do the thing you have to treat your kids like they have reasoning skills or else they will never have reasoning skills and then they oh my god andy and then they don't wear masks during a pandemic ooh <laughs> Because they don't have reasoning skills. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's both um, both media and my own personal experience has shown me there is no child, daughter or son, who, if they are in a position where they can manipulate a a parent and use a parent's perception of them and how innocent they are. There is no child that cannot front the golden innocent status and then sneak somebody into their room at night 
Um, you know, you, you brought up high school and, and this jarred something that's always kind of stuck in my memory and it's, it's more anecdotal than anything, but I remember I was either a junior or a senior and, I, and the bell rings and I'm walking to class and I pass a girl who I know is a freshman and she's talking to a friend of hers and the only snippet of their conversation I hear is, and then he came in my eye and, and you know, didn't know the girl well enough to like talk to her later and, and get the skinny on what that was. And, and I don't think ever spoke to that girl or, or was around her ever again, but just in passing freshman girl telling her friend. Yeah. And then he came in my eye has uh stuck with me <laughs> i get it um i will say on a much more horrifying standpoint i i had a friend in high school freshman year um you know she was 14 and i remember her telling me about skipping school with her boyfriend and the two of them hanging out at her house and having sex all day um and it was that was how she lost her virginity and then i remember her saying that like the second time they did it, they used the same condom because oh. they only had one condom. Oh, and I was like, no. Yeah. And I said to her, I'm like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And she's like, what? I'm not, what? I just know we're supposed to we're supposed to use it. Like it was the only one we had. Um, It was perfectly fine. Why would I throw it away? Like. And I was sitting here just like, oh, dear God. Yeah, that's, oh, that's upsetting. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, like, you know what? She turned out fine. You know, she's still a friend of mine now. But, like, I remember that, like, that still is in my head, just that conversation and me being like, oh, my God, please. Just next time, next time, tell him to buy con. Fuck, I'll shoplift you some condoms. I don't care. Like, don't do that again, please. Sure. You can tell you can tell this point in time in my life because it was when I was still shoplifting. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, just to, I, I know we're I know we're starting to run long. I wanna I wanna hit a couple of last points here, but I, I I've actually very much enjoyed our conversation, Andy. I'm glad. Um, yeah. Um, a major issue I have with the abstinence-only sex education style, the, just this entire messaging here, is it's narrow-minded. Um, people can talk about how abstinence-only education is non-religious. It has nothing to do with religion. Um, it has nothing to do with any particular culture or, or anything like that. And that's... A very surface level reading, mm -hmm. you know, that is that is honestly like saying that, um, you know, policing knows no race when, you know, unofficially your police, your, your police forces are targeting certain neighborhoods more than others. Um, it frequently focuses on, quote unquote, family values and it discounts the experiences of queer people, people who don't want to get married, and frankly, non-Christians. You know, I remember sitting in a Florida classroom listening to some individual. I don't I don't remember his qualifications, but he's sitting there talking to me about how, like, he waited until marriage 
to have sex with his wife and it was so much better for both of them and i'm sitting here like i i i, I don't care i i do see you have a cross around your neck like what am i supposed to do with that messaging like at the time i was wearing a cross around my neck and it just it made me feel really squeegee, especially because I knew there were non-Christians in that room. It bothered me. I will hear stories from people who got it worse than me. Andy, have you heard of the chewed up bubblegum? Uh, no. Okay. So in a number of abstinence-only sex education curriculum, they will straight up have whoever's teaching the segment take a piece of gum and like everyone takes a piece of gum and then you chew the piece of gum and then you put the spit the piece of gum out onto a piece of paper and then they tell you to give it to somebody and it's like and everyone's obviously like no why would i give this chewed up piece of gum to somebody and they're like right you would have been happier to give it to somebody when it wasn't chewed up right <sighs> and i'm like yeah and they're like that's what sex before marriage is. I... And it's even worse if somebody else does take it and they chew it up and now you have to give it to somebody else. And it's been chewed by two people. I'm, this is in books, Andy. I'm, this is in books that are taught in public schools right now. I'm upset beyond the point of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> This is the shit, man. This is what people are doing. And, and you know, they'll use terminology that just makes... that. You will never get anyone to do something good out of shame. Yeah. I am living proof of this. You will never get anyone to do something good out of shame because everything I've ever been shamed into doing, I just did harder. Like... <laughs> Bet. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, um, just real, real quick. I know you, you want to make a couple final points, but the the religion angle is such a slippery slope too, because all it takes is a cult leader um, turning to a minor and saying, "God says you're my wife now," and nobody's going to question it in that uh, scenario. So. That that's the immediate counter argument for me. Sure, and and again, I have known people who, and and I'll be honest, I've known people who, on religious grounds, have abstained from sex until marriage, and I don't want those people to feel like that decision was bad. Sure, that decision. I don't know. I don't want those people to feel like that decision was a bad one. It's valid. It's okay. You're allowed. You're allowed to do whatever you want with your body. Fuck. I know people who are celibate by choice. They just choose to be. And that is okay. Yeah. It's just not okay to force it on anybody else. Sure. Final point um, before I wrap up. Um, Abstinence-only sex education is stupid logic. It is. The notion that it's 100% effective falls apart under minimal scrutiny. Like, yes, if you are abstinent and nothing happens, nothing is done to you, are are you, like, technically 100% safe from STIs and, um, and, and pregnancy? Okay, yeah. That is true. That advice is 
highly, highly impractical. And it just doesn't, it's, you know what it's like? It's like the gun debate. It really is, you know, if you, if you have a gun, you might be, if you have a gun in the house, there might be a situation where somebody will come into your house and the gun might help you defend yourself. But when you actually look at the statistics on break-ins and home invasions and home invasions of places with guns, statistically speaking, you're still probably not going to get a chance to use the gun and you are more likely to hurt yourself or someone else in the household. That's just how the it, it, it's logic that doesn't it's those are statistics that don't play well with your logic with general logic, but they don't. Sure. They just don't. And the idea that giving advice and access to contraception will encourage irresponsible behavior is wholly baseless. You know, I've I've known women in high school who have had horrendous menstrual issues, whose doctors, whose pediatricians have recommended that they go on birth control or who have said to their parents, I think I should go on birth control to regulate this. And their parents have gone, well, no, you don't get to go on birth control because then you'll do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Like the fear of consequence is the only thing that will stop somebody from doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And that assumes a lot about what they shouldn't be doing. That's but a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. I just... Point is, and to wrap it up, abstinence is a perfectly valid form of birth control. It's a perfectly valid way to live your life. It's a perfectly valid lifestyle. I it's that's the, That is important for me to emphasize because I don't think it gets emphasized enough on... Um, you know, my side of this debate, I really don't think it is, but it doesn't work. And it's just one more, it's one more tick in this giant miasma of bullshit that is the educational system that is frankly such a longstanding problem for an American populace. Like, and, and, and frankly, this is one that's very easy to fix. It's parents parents do the sex ed have the talk <laughs> sure explain contraceptives i don't care if you feel icky about it if you feel icky about it if you can't handle it there is youtube yeah Dad. there is there is youtube you know what else there is there is other family members or friends who can have these conversations with did you know that you can schedule an appointment with your doctor take your kid and have the doctor explain it to them? I did not. Yes. You have to pay a copay. Like, if you've got insurance, you're going to pay your copay for a visit. So, whatever it is, most insurance, it's 25 to $50, somewhere in there. You'll pay a copay for a pediatrician's visit, but you can sit your 13-year-old son or daughter in front of their pediatrician and go, Hey, doc, my kid's going through puberty. I'm too much of a bitch ass <laughs> to explain <laughs> sex ed to them. So can you just, like, take the hour and talk to them? I'm going to go have a smoke in the parking lot because I'm a bitch ass. <laughs> Fascinating. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. So just take the step. Just do it. Like, and, and, and you know what? Like, 
if you've got other family members who are willing to do this, like, but my, my, my nephew is not old enough for this. And I'm pretty sure my sister can handle it fine. I'm pretty sure her husband can handle it fine. But if they can't and they're like, Alex has taught sex ed before. Let's just send our nephew to go spend a weekend with his uncle to learn about all the horrors. <laughs> sure. I will do that happily. Find family that can do this. Find qualified professionals if you can't. Do it yourself if you're not a bitch ass. But do the thing. Because you you just, we, we can't let this continue. We can't. Sure. That's me. Shall we go on to our question? Yeah, let's go ahead. Um, I have Speaking a transition, but it would be in poor taste. So go right for it, my man. <laughs> oh, God. Um, do you want to read this or should I? Um, you, you were the one who presented this. And, and I will say, we've done questions of a similar vein. And, and I read the last one. So you go ahead. Okay. Um, okay. This one actually combines a few of our recent questions now that I think about it. Okay, so from relationships.txt. I, 28-year-old female, am unsure how to to approach my friend, 26-year-old male, who I have a major crush on after acting out drunkenly. Seems innocent enough. I'm so embarrassed, but I don't want to throw away a friendship even if my feelings aren't reciprocated. I have a good friend I met through work a few years ago. Lots of dinners and drinking together, but no moves made. And I have no particular reason to think he likes me beyond a buddy. I, however, could see myself with him seriously. We were drinking together at my apartment last night, just eating wings and watching TV. We got tipsy and started sharing funny sex stories. But honestly, it hurts to hear him talking about enjoying himself with other women. Immature, I know. So I kept drinking to numb it out and keep having a good time. The subject turned to queefing. And I told him about how I get worried about doing group yoga class because downward dog makes me queef. I don't know what possessed me. Alcohol. Alcohol possessed you. Um, But I decided to demonstrate. I did a big sloping downward dog, let the air rush in, and let go the biggest queef I have ever done in my life. Like a squelchy, humid foghorn. That little piece of poetry is what got me to pick this question, by the way. Uh, I was straight trashed at this point, but I still immediately felt hugely embarrassed and clearly took the joke too far. He just looked at me dead-eyed, then immediately called an Uber and left. Now I'm hungover and too embarrassed for words. How do I even apologize for being so weird and gross? So... I think our last uh, our, our last anonymous nickname for somebody was Mr. Garrison. And I find my brain also again going to South Park. Oh, God. And the, uh, the, the queefing sisters from uh, that one Terrence and Philip episode. I don't remember their names and they were one-off characters. So are we looking at Terrence and Philip? You know what? Yeah. Yeah, I think we are. Okay. Terrence is the grosser one and more embarrassing one. So I'm thinking this is Terrence. Would you like a monkey claw, Philip? Yes, please. <laughs> That's called the monkey claw because it feels like my colon is being ripped apart by a thousand monkeys. The monkey claw is smelly. 
even though you know i don't think this is too gross it's mostly just embarrassing yeah but, this isn't this um, isn't uh this isn't dropping a, a fat log on your uh lover's bedroom floor for sure yeah um andy do you want to start with this one yeah i'll, I'll go ahead so so hi there terrence um this is a uh, embarrassing situation for sure and i i see you recognize that and and my heart goes out to you you say you're too embarrassed for words how do i even apologize and you have to swallow a lot of that um you you with the help of uh much alcohol created this situation um and it's unfortunate but i get it you know i've certainly been drunker than i should should have been and then like tried to do something that i knew was gonna be really funny and it wasn't And, and that's very much what happened here but you know i think if if you can do the work internally and you can swallow the embarrassment and you can accept the possibility that it is pretty likely that a theoretical romantic um, relationship is probably uh, that, that, that has left the station. If you can accept those two things, you can still salvage the friendship by explaining a lot of the same things you explain in this question. I'm so sorry for what I did that night. Um, we were drinking and I was getting incredibly drunk, drunker than I should have been. To be perfectly honest, I was uh, hiding behind the alcohol to deal with some internal stresses. I misread the room and I thought that would be a funny thing to do. And clearly it wasn't. And I understand your reaction. I'm deeply horribly embarrassed and i am incredibly sorry and i hope that we can continue a friendship even if maybe rightfully so we don't um go out for so much beer and wings again something along those lines and you put the ball in philip's court and then you you gotta just put it in his hands to either be like, yes, we can still be friends or no, that made me deeply uncomfortable and is going to be a lasting point in our relationship. I think that's solid. Um, the only thing I would add to that, Terrence, is this, uh, like, I look at the core of this issue and it's very easy for me to sit here and be like, okay, the core of the issue was that you got drunk and you got and you misread the room. And you did. You absolutely did. Those were the actions that you took. I'm looking for the core of the actions. And the core of the action seems to be that you have feelings for your friend. And not only feelings for your friend, but you have enough of an emotional attachment to him through those feelings that you got jealous of his previous sexual experiences as the two of you were talking. And I and I assume you were talking about your own. So you were okay sharing some things with him, but as soon as he started talking to you about his past, you got uncomfortable enough 
that you started self-medicating. Andy, does that it sound does, about right? And, and uh, you know, it's not specified, and I leave it open to the possibility that Terrence doesn't have a wide gamut of stories to pull from, and it could have been a little more one-sided, or it could have been that uh, Philip's stories were of a different caliber, and that fueled the uh, the problem feelings you're talking about, but. One way or another, they they do say we were talking about funny sex stories, so it it can go as read that there were sex stories to be talked about. Sure. So, um, and you know that that was an immature response. You right here, immature. I know. Um. So what I am seeing here is that you you not is that these feelings are strong enough. And controlled you enough that you pushed yourself to self-medication. And in the course of that self-medication, you did what alcohol tends to do. You lost your inhibitions. Um, personally, I think this story, like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. If, like, this kind of thing happened with, like, a random friend in the hypothetical world where... You know, I was single, they were single, this kind of thing occurred. I don't think that would be a game changer. I think it would be a conversation, but I don't think it would, like, sure. destroy things. But you don't seem to be in an okay place because you let your discomfort control your actions. And you let your sense of ownership over this person to whom you are just friends and you have feelings for dictate your behavior uh it's a mistake we all make it's I, I don't want you to beat yourself up about it but i think you need to maybe examine how much lack of control you have over yourself here um and and again that seems like a kind of toxic sense of ownership for someone you're not even dating he's allowed to have a past even if you start dating He's allowed to have had a past, just like you're allowed to have had a past. I think that you should follow Andy's advice as far as apologizing. But I think you need to make, before you take those steps, I think you need to decide what you want to do here. Um, I think you need to either decide, I'm not going to tell him about my feelings and I just want to be friends. And I'm going to actively close this door. Or I'm going to tell him about my feelings, come what may. Like... You need to make that decision and either move on from these feelings and be friends, or you need to pursue the feelings come what may. Because if you just try and continue as you are, something like this is going to happen again. You aren't dealing with your feelings. So you need to deal with them, either by getting over them or by pursuing them. That's the decision to make before you apologize. Either way... Homie deserves an uh, homie deserves an apology yeah. for you acting out a certain way, um, because that's not cool. Um, you know, nothing wrong with queefing. That's fine. Hell, some people are into it, um, and and that deserves respect. Um, but you made the situation uncomfortable because you couldn't deal with your feelings. So deal with your feelings. Yeah, and that's that's really the thing here. You know, it's it's not so much what you did as it is why you did it and the uh you know the things that spurred you to do it 
But we wish Terrence and Philip the best. And, you know, we're going to put this on the relationships.txt post in, in the hopes that somebody sees it. Um, if you have a relationship question, it, it can be, you know, about something that is maybe a little embarrassing to you. And we promise we'll treat it with respect. Or it can be, you know, just a uh, more standard I'm in a fight and I don't know what to do about it. Or my neighbor's dog is causing problems for me. How do I talk to them? Anything that qualifies as a relationship question, you can send those in to love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. Yes, you can. And I'm going to actually ask this. Um, I know we all, we're always asking for your relationship questions uh, and we do want those, but I'll tell you what, if you find a relationship question online, maybe you also follow relationships.txt and you want to send one to Ooh. us that you're just interested in yeah. hearing our perspective on, um, please do that. We've got some regular listeners who I know check that podcast or check that Twitter thread. So send them our way. Uh, and if they include poetry, like squelchy, humid foghorn, um, so much the better. <laughs> um, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcast, Google podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey mom. Um, I'm terribly sorry about this entire episode <laughs> and most of my childhood. Um, <laughs> uh, you can also, um, Follow us on Twitter at LHRPod, that's L-H-R-P-O-D, uh, to submit your questions there or follow us to keep up that's with right. new episodes. That's right. You can follow me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. You can also find my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I talk about old cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Renee Johnson. I don't think any of them have Chris Hemsworth, but maybe. Uh, Cabin in the See, Woods. I don't think Cabin list? in the Woods is cult. I just think it's really good, much to my wife's ire. Uh, you know what? That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, we'll see what happens. You know, <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at a underscore x underscore r u i z. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thank As you for always. going on this journey with us. Um, talk to your ch- talk to your children about sex. Read Jason Aaron's Thor. Um. Deal with your feelings, and as always, tell your enemies. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love the uh, the re-encapsulation of all the things as a, a thing people can do. That can stay. 